And welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame. And my name is Yiman Chen. Uh, today we have a guest who has, in a way, succeeded uh, doing something that we've all tried to do here as graduate students, and she's completed the neuroscience program at Western here and is now a PhD student at U of T, to, and she's here to tell us about her work and, uh, uh, you know, what she's up to. So, Kyla, Kyla Lee, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thanks, Ariel. I'm good. How are you? Good. I, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, what you've been doing and uh, what you have done at Western. So I think to start off, maybe can you tell us in your master's here at Western in neuroscience, uh, generally, what was your what was your work about? Yeah, so um, I worked under uh, Dr. Raja Kumar in the anatomy and cell biology department in the neuroscience program. And so what we did was uh, we basically looked at schizophrenia from a neurodevelopmental perspective. So uh, we, we took a look at um, rats and we kind of damaged their, their brain when they were very, very young and kind of looked at how that could predispose them to developing schizophrenia-like traits as adults. Wow, okay, so like, not to be morbid here, um, but, could you tell me just a little bit, like, how how do you give your little tiny rats brain damage? Yeah, they're what tiny. What are you doing? They are very tiny. Um, we use, like, a very, very small, thin needle. Like, it's so small and thin that if you pricked yourself on it, like, you wouldn't even feel it kind of thing. Um, and we just injected... Um, a solution called nerve growth factor into their brain. And what it does is it just kind of damages a very specific area of the brain. Um, so that's how we did it. It's it, the protocol is actually really straightforward and really easy to do. I guess out of, out of interest, is this like a, is this a growth factor that we'd like specifically find doing this kind of damage in schizophrenia or is it just a kind of a means to an end? Yeah, yeah. It just targets like uh, very specific cells in the in the brain that's that's in the brain at that particular age. Uh, so it's just kind of, yeah, it's just a means to an end. It's not really the nerve growth factor itself isn't really related to schizophrenia as far as I know. Okay, so like uh, what sorts of cells were you targeting uh, with this procedure? And, and can you tell us like what these cells are, are supposed to be doing in the brain? Yeah, um, <clears throat> so the area that I was uh, damaging in the brain is called the subplate layer. So in my opinion, it's super underrated and super under-researched. Like, I think it's such an important part of a developing brain. It's really interesting because it's transient. So in rats, it's only like it's, it's a layer in the brain uh, sitting right below the, the cortex. It's only there for a week after birth. And then it just kind of dies off. Uh, similarly in humans, I think it's around like it dies off around like two or three years of age. I'm not 100% sure because I didn't do human work. But anyway, it's transient. So um, the, the nerve growth factor solution that we kind of infused into the brain kind of pools out all over the brain. But because it's only the subplate neurons that have um, basically the target that the solution hits, that's the only area that gets damaged. And we kind of focused on the prefrontal cortex because we were interested in um, behavioral kind of uh, manifestations of the rat that 
we're similar to humans with schizophrenia. So like cognitive issues and positive negative symptoms, a lot of that come from the prefrontal cortex. So that's why we, we did that. Can, can you maybe elaborate a little bit for us on like uh, the different behaviors that you did, but also like what is a positive and negative symptom yeah. in schizophrenia? So I didn't, I didn't run any behavior myself, but this animal model that we've been using with like the brain damage and stuff, it's been used for years in our lab. Uh, so we do have a lot of data. So there are, uh, there are tests that are done in rats. So technically rats can't have schizophrenia, right? Because schizophrenia is inherently a human disorder, um, but there are tests that kind of mimic a lot of the traits in schizophrenia. So um, there's set shifting, there is PPI, which is pre-pulse inhibition. Um, uh, what else? There's also social, social tests. So these rats are kind of showing cognitive issues where they're having difficulty like remembering things and making decisions and executive functioning. And then they're also kind of like, you know, a little bit socially weird. Um, <laughs> rats are very social animals. So you can kind of tell. Um, so those are the behavioral parts. I guess, I guess I'm kind of interested uh, in like, you know, you had a lot of experience now working with rats. And I think a lot of people who haven't done any work with these kinds of animals are, are kind of uh, intrigued as to like, what is it, what is it like to work with them and how do they behave? So can you maybe tell us what it was like to do that kind of work? And what did you, were you able to see any of this socially weirdness in rats? Yeah, I definitely saw some of the social weird stuff, like even though I didn't um, actively measure or look at any of the behavioral um, differences, you, you know, even when I go into the rat room to like check in on them or like just to see how they're doing or pick them up for something or whatever, sometimes I just watch them and the ones with the brain damage, um, they uh, a lot of the times they were kind of just off on their own doing their own thing. Grooming was also very weird. So rats will groom themselves and um, just kind of lick themselves and clean themselves. And they were like almost obsessive about it. They wouldn't stop. Um, we've also done uh, swim tests um, and kind of just seeing how well they recover from some, uh, some intense physical activities. Weirdly in uh, weirdly in those tests, a lot of the animals with the brain damage seem to uh, have a harder time recovering, um, which is weird because it wasn't what we were expecting at all. A lot of the differences that you see from these animals are very structural just in the prefrontal cortex, which doesn't necessarily have anything to do with like your muscle function or like how well you can breathe or swim or anything like that, right? It's mostly decision-based executive functioning stuff. Um, but unfortunately, I never really got to finish that little study because that was um, that was a little side project I was taking on. Yeah, so Kala, you said um, the procedure you're doing to, to give the mice brain damage, you were focused on the, the subplate layer, right? And, and this is transitory. So um, do we know anything about like what the what is actually going on in terms of like how does sort of damage to this transitory layer uh, produce these schizophrenia-like results in the rats? Yeah, so this, this layer is really important for um, relaying kind of neuronal pathways early in development. So your brain actually grows inside out, right? So it, it's kind of like it balloons out um, as it grows. And so the, 
the neurons that are in the core of your brain, that like the core of your brain as you have it right now as an adult, they have to find their way to make connections to the neurons towards the outside in your cortex. And so the subplate sitting kind of in the middle of all of that, it plays the kind of scaffolding role of you know, holding hands between the different parts of the brain until they can hold hands by themselves and then they disappear and they die off. They're like, okay, I did my job. I connected everyone. I networked everyone. Now I'm done. So without the subplate, you know, these neurons have, uh, I guess, less of an idea of where they're supposed to go. So there are studies that have damaged this layer in different areas of the brain. So I, I damaged in the prefrontal cortex, but there's a really, really popular study in this very niche subplate field uh, where they damage the visual cortex. It's a study from 2006 by uh, doctors Kennelt and Schatz. One of my favorite studies, it's super cool. Um, and we gained a lot of inspiration from it as well, but they damaged the subplate and the visual cortex and they found that it messed up a lot of their, um, their visual cues, they, uh, their barrel cortex, which is basically like the organization of the cells that uh, represent vision almost in your brain were all messed up. Um, they were having neuronal like excitatory imbalances, all sorts of things were weird as an adult. So um, that kind of made us wonder, you know, what happens if we do it in the prefrontal cortex because the, the excitatory imbalance was really cool because that's something that's seen in a lot of schizophrenia patients. Um, and we saw some molecular stuff that seemed to imply there were excitatory issues in our animals where the subplate of the prefrontal cortex was damaged. But unfortunately, my master's was only two and a bit years long. I didn't have time to get there, <laughs> which, uh, which is unfortunate, but you know, it's life. Well, so based on uh, some of the work you did here um, using the rat model, uh, do you have some ideas right now of how uh, your findings in this study might map onto our, our, our understanding of schizophrenia in, in human beings. Like, are there, um, you know, sort of similar behaviors that manifest in humans that you've studied in the mice and so on? Uh, I don't know about like similar behaviors in, in terms of directly, you know, translatable from rat behavior to human behavior, because it's, it's the other way around, right? Like we look at uh, human behavior of those with schizophrenia and then we see, okay, is that mimicked in the rats? Um, but in terms of, I guess, like implications, uh, I think there's a lot of potential with this animal model for literally understanding it, how important brain development is as it relates to schizophrenia development, right? Because like, for example, if you know a pregnant mother uh, has the flu or some sort of viral infection during while she's pregnant, risk for developing schizophrenia in the baby skyrockets. Right? Same with malnutrition. Same with gestational diabetes. Same with uh, hypoxia or birth complications. If the baby were to come out with the umbilical cord wrapped around their neck, they can't breathe for I don't know how many minutes or how many seconds or what you know, brain damage, um, and not even necessarily like huge brain damage, it could be subtle enough that it just predisposes them to developing schizophrenia as an adult. Um, there's also a lot of overlaps with schizophrenia and autism as well in terms of molecular, I guess, um, manifestation in the brain. Yeah, and it's also very interesting, I think, that the subplate is particularly vulnerable to hypoxia, which is just like lack of oxygen. All the other parts of the brain at that age can kind of you know, come back from it, I guess, they, they're not, they don't get as hit as hard as the subplate does. Hmm. 
it might be like the canary in the coal mine, you know, like it, if, yeah. if this is getting damaged, then it's, it's an indication that something, something's coming. Yeah. And it's tricky though, right? Because it's transient. So if the subplate was around until adulthood, we could take a look at the subplate and people with schizophrenia and ask, okay, is there something wrong with the subplate? But we can't because it's gone by the time they're like two, three years old. So uh, I guess by two, three, I mean, you can look, I guess it's difficult to know with diagnosis at two, three, what's going on. But if you could look at two or you could look at one and a half, you could like well, that, but. the thing with schizophrenia is that it's usually uh, adolescent or adult onset. So right. the symptoms don't start showing up until you're kind of already old enough. And by the time the symptoms are showing, your subplate's long gone. How insidious is that? Hey, you get you get a disease, you go, yeah, now you have it. Oh, we took we could have maybe like done something about it. But that was like 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you came too late, buddy. <laughs> oh, that sucks. <laughs> Um, well, uh, you know, um, we're talking a lot about the human stuff here and like the human component, but yes, all this work was, was done in, in rats. Start understanding that you're, you know, doing more human related stuff in your, in your PhD. Can you tell us what was the, uh, impetus for the change here? What, well, how did you decide to go from master's to PhD and, and do the type of PhD that you're doing now? Yeah, I'm going to be completely honest with y'all. Um, the optimizing, the troubleshooting, uh, figuring out all the protocols, emailing authors. How did you isolate this? What reagent did you use? What caused it? It was driving me insane. I just could not do it. And I think at some point during my master's, I realized that I liked the computer work and just sitting down and asking the questions, mapping out the questions and the ways I could go about solving them and even running the stats and the analysis and you know, punching in all those numbers into SPSS or whatever. I enjoyed that so much more than the actual bench work that I was doing. Um, so I think that was kind of like the trigger that made me ask, okay, maybe I should kind of switch up my field. I knew I loved research. I'm just a little bit more of a curious person by nature, but the bench work was driving me insane. You know, there's like that joke, like if your experiment doesn't work, maybe the moon's in a different phase or like... <laughs> So stuff like that, you know, the fact that it's it's such a well-known joke and so many molecular scientists laugh at it, I think it, it speaks for itself. Um, so that was one of the reasons I decided to. And also uh, the research that I'm uh, that I'm hoping to start with my PhD is um, looking at uh, social determinants of health within medical settings. So specifically primary care in Ontario. Um, and how, uh, how these different determinants can affect immigrant health. Uh, and I am an immigrant as well. My parents are immigrants. I'm immigrants. I've watched them try to navigate the Canadian healthcare system. You know, we have primary care physicians in Ontario that kind of, quote unquote, act as those gatekeepers, right? They decide almost if you get that referral or not to a specialist, so on and so forth. And so building that relationship with your primary care physician is really, really important. There needs to be a lot of trust. There needs to be communication. You need to have agreement on goals. There needs to be shared decision-making. You need to be able to communicate what your symptoms are, et cetera, et cetera. And in order to do that, um, I mean, there are so many different factors, but for immigrants, it's uh, there's an additional layer of difficulty getting through all of that, right? Um, and interestingly, at least in psychotherapy, 
uh, the relationship between the therapist or the provider and, and the client or the patient um, is very strongly correlated with patient satisfaction, patient health outcomes, medication or treatment adherence, all of these things, even job satisfaction. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering what that looks like in the context of primary care, but particularly for immigrants in Ontario. So that is the, the basis of your, of your current work in your PhD. How, how far are you in now? Um, I am still trying to figure out my pilot stuff. I've been talking to a lot of different experts in the field. Um, obviously, I didn't know this before I started because I'm brand new to the field of health services research, but primary care research is actually pretty big. Um, there are a lot of different institutions, a lot of different databases, a lot of experts who have been doing this for decades. And, and uh, I didn't know this until I started, but there are different models of primary care. They've already looked at if there are differences between between the models of primary care. Um, all these questions have already been asked. So I think I'm still trying to figure out, okay, how can I kind of squeeze myself into this <laughs> and figure out what I do know, but most importantly, what we don't know yet, what has not been looked at. Um, so I'm still, yeah, I'm still trying to figure out my pilots, but um, I, I feel pretty confident in, uh, in the general theme of the research that I'm trying to do. Wow, so it sounds like, you know, this is a massive shift uh, moving from doing like molecular lab work with rats and then switching to basically like field work with human beings. Um, how are you finding this transition? Like you said, you had basically um, no real background in this area coming into it. Uh, how, how has that been for you? Have, is there a lot of catching up to do basically? There's definitely a lot of catching up, uh, especially because I, I kind of entered as a direct entry PhD, right? So if I was a little bit more junior, maybe I, I would feel a little bit more comfortable, you know, taking my time, poking and prodding around, but uh, that's not the case. Um, I think it's kind of like on two different levels. There's the literature review, right, of, of the field of primary care in Ontario, which is fine. It's just a matter of me taking the time to chat with the other experts and do my readings and ask questions. But I think mostly it's uh, kind of like the unspoken, like, um, you know, those things that you just kind of learn as you do it. So for example, um, correlations, I did not know, apparently, technically, everything in this world is correlated to everything else at a, at a degree of like 0.3 or something like that. That was not something that I had to think about at all during my molecular work, right? So, um, you know, and then confounds, uh, covariates, all these different elements that come into play for health services research as compared to molecular research, they're a little bit more different. So I think I'm still trying to navigate that because like, I don't even know what I don't know about it, at least for primary care. When I'm reading the papers, it's like, I don't know what that is. I'm going to go and Google it. But these are such kind of like basic knowledge things in the field that a lot of the times they're not mentioned um, during discussions or papers or whatever. It's kind of like, you should already know this. Uh, so no one's going to go into it. So the whole thing is just a lot more messy than like a, a strict laboratory with control settings and everything like that. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I think I don't necessarily I don't think messy would be the word I would use. Uh, I think it's just different. I have to 
I have to look and think about things in a very, very different way now. Uh, thankfully, my supervisor is very supportive. We have weekly meetings and he's been trying his best to fill me in on everything. Um, but there is definitely a lot of work to be done. I guess I, I think about um, when I see my doctor and I talk to them, you know, in my mind, I sometimes am talking to them as if, you know, they have a bunch of uh, academic theories behind the things that they're doing. And there's this, uh, you know, deep look into research and that's going to, you know, what's going to determine what we're doing. But it's very practical, typically, when I'm speaking to a, to a primary physician, my dad being one of them, too, actually. Uh, it's like, okay, this is like what we got to do. And like, here's the like criteria in which we evaluate this. I've seen it for this circumstances. You got to look for this marker. And then if I see this thing, that's a trigger. And if that's, if I see that, that's really important. So they're just looking for like, you know, a lot of red flags for very important things. And if not, it's like a kind of niche, but it's very, very practical. Whereas in when I'm doing like, you know, animal work, I'm like, uh, there's not like a specific aim per se. I'm like kind of exploring randomly, but I've got a, but I've got these controls that I'm trying to like focus in on. So, so I feel that uh, the di one difference to me between, you know, medical uh, applications and, you know, uh, primary in lab work is the practical implications of, uh, of doing medicine. It's not necessarily like a, a theoretical basis thing. Um, so do you, do you feel or are you going to be getting some experience actually watching physicians doing their work? Are you able to actually go and see see doctors do what they do? Yeah, probably. Um, I'll probably partner with different clinics and pop in, interview some people. I'm not really sure to what extent I'll be involved, but also I'm, I personally, my research, I'm not interested in, um, you know, what kinds of uh, tests they're administering or, you know, um, how they are treating the patients. It's more so the relationship and um, is there even a relationship and what influences the relationship? Uh, so I think it'll probably be mostly through interviews or uh, just sitting in and watching, but I'm not interested in the technical uh, delivery portion. Yeah, so you said you're doing a pilot study in preparation for your uh, your thesis work here. Can you tell us a little bit about like what does this pilot study look like? What are you doing for it? Yeah, so there are two different primary care models that I'm uh, interested in. So there's a community health uh, center, which is basically a salaried model, and their patients are a lot of vulnerable patients. So usually a lot of homeless people. Um, uh, people who are struggling with addiction, uh, low socioeconomic status, et cetera, et cetera, usually in like very populated urban areas. And then the other one I'm looking at is a family health team, uh, which is on a different type of uh, compensation model. People are enrolled to their physicians and a lot of patients that are in these types of models are a little bit more affluent and, you know, of a certain demographic and uh, things like that. So Right off the bat, there is a little bit of a difference in the populations in the two different types of clinics that I'm looking at. But uh, not only am I interested in looking at the differences between those two clinics, I also want to see uh, if primary care physician cultural competence, so the extent to which they are able to kind of recognize that this person comes from a particular culture, whatever that may be, and 
I can adjust my treatment methods and my interactions with them as necessary. So wondering what, you know, whether this cultural competence of the physician um, influences the, the relationship between them and their immigrant patients. And then I'm also wondering, is English proficiency a factor in there for the immigrant patient? Like, let's say we have a very culturally competent physician, right? And they're working with two different patients. One is high English proficiency and one is low English proficiency. Does that have an influence on their relationship? And therefore, going further than that, does that, in, does that relationship have an influence on patient satisfaction, patient health outcomes, et cetera, et cetera? And do they interact? We don't know. Okay. Um, could you give us an example of like, what do you mean by cultural competency? Like, what does that look like in a, in a physician relationship? Um, it's a very broad, it's a very big umbrella term. Um, I personally think that's one, it, it's a new kind of concept. So like shared decision-making, um, things like that, it's trauma-informed care. All of these types of, I guess, ways physicians can go about their treatment are still fairly new, uh, similar to cult cultural competency. So if I were to kind of define it broadly, it would be just understanding that your patient comes from a different culture. So for example, if they refuse a treatment uh, and they cite whatever you know reason, whether it's their sexual or religion or their gender or whatever it is, uh, a culturally competent physician would understand that and try and figure out a way together what other treatment options are available. Um, so it's, it's kind of like just good bedside manner compared to the old kind of paternalistic style of, uh, of healthcare. It sounds certainly like something uh, that <laughs> I think would be valuable uh, in in any doctor. So no, I don't, I don't know if anyone would would hear what the way you describe cultural competency and say, hey, no, no, for sure, I don't want any of that. <laughs> it sounds for sure like something. Uh, yeah, in uh, theory, you know, the people are going to want <laughs> in theory. Um, yeah. So it'd be interesting to see uh, how it actually plays out and the and the details of of why it's important and when it's important and whatnot. So that's going to be cool to see uh, where that goes with your work. Um, we're just uh, just getting close to the end of time here. So before we let you go, could you uh, tell people where they can find you on the interwebs if they wanted to hear more about, you know, Kyla Lee and her work? Yeah, for sure. I do have a Twitter. Um, it's Kyla with three A's. So K-Y-L-A-A-A, Lee, L-E-E. -E. Um, I don't tweet that much about my work. I'm usually just kind of, you know, saying grad student things about grad school things. But if, you know, occasionally I will. So feel free to find me there. Excellent. Um, uh, it's been great having you on the show and uh, hearing about your work. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I've been your host, Ariel Frame. My co-host was Yimin Chen. Uh, today we've been speaking with Kyla Lee. And uh, this episode was produced by her Nadine. If you'd like to get involved in the show, you want to contact us, email us at uh, gradcastradio at gmail.com. Um, you can find us also on social media. Uh, we've got Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Gradcast Radio. Uh, you can listen to us uh, on the radio, Radio Western 94.9 FM. And you can also find all our episodes on our website, gradcast.ca, and any podcast app that, you know, including Spotify, you can find us there as well. Uh, certain episodes are also on YouTube uh, uh, under Gradcast Radios. Thanks for listening. Have a good night.